Romans 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so but that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The Word of God. Let's pray. God, I pray for your help. This is among the most difficult concepts in the gospel to understand, how to reconcile grace and law. Help me to be clear, and I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that we would all be strong, but we're not all strong. And so until we're all strong, I pray that you would help us to not seek uh, the pleasure of ourselves, but that we would seek to please others, that we might do good to one another and build one another up. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Structure for today's text is fairly straightforward. If you're into circling or highlighting um, your Bibles, then you would want to circle verses 1 and 2 and verse 7. Verses 1 and 2 and verse 7. Because these three verses, 15.1, 15.2, and 15.7, they give us our exhortations. These are the things that Paul is asking of us and God through Paul. This is how, what we ought to be and to do. Then you have verses 3 through 6, which give a theological rationale for verses 1 and 2. And you have verses 8 through 13, which give a theological rationale for verse 7. So you see that there? You have, how do you count the exhortations? I've divided them into exhortation 1 and exhortation 2, but there might be three exhortations there. You have exhortations in 15, 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 6, Paul's going to tell us why he's asking us to be and to do those things. Then he gives us one more 
exhortation in verse 7. In verses 8 through 13, he's going to tell us why he wants us to be and do those things. So that's what we're going to look at today. Now, what you're going to notice is I've divided them into three exhortations. It might be four, but anyway, let's just go with three from here on out. We have three exhortations that are very much alike. So what Paul is doing is not giving us three individual ideas or three individual exhortations, but he's taking one main idea and he's nuancing it for us. So in some ways, it's one exhortation, and he's explaining that exhortation in three or four different ways. So let's take a look at verses... Well, I'm going to read all of the exhortations, and then we'll go back and we'll work through the text. So exhortation number one is in verse one. The strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Exhortation number two is in verse two. Let us... Uh, we are to please our neighbor for his or her good. That is, we are to build our neighbor up. Then verses 3 through 6, which we'll get to, is going to give us the reason why. And then look at the third exhortation in verse 7. We are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. All glory to God. Let's take a look at the first exhortation in verse 1. The strong are to bear with the failings of the weak. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That last part there, and not to please ourselves, gives us some indication of where Paul is going. What does it mean to bear with the failings of the weak? Well, it means that we are not to please ourselves. What does it mean to please ourselves? One way, and I'm going to come back to this several times in this sermon, is to want to be proven right. You ever have that temptation? I know the Bible, and you don't know the Bible. And I want you to acknowledge that I'm right and you're wrong. You ever been in that situation on either side? Either you've been the strong one who wants to be proven right, or you've been the weak one where a stronger brother or sister is beating you over the head with his or her knowledge. And how does that feel? Does, it, does that make you want to love Jesus more? No. And, and that's exactly where Paul is going here. Is he's, he's looking at the church. He's saying, you know, it's good to be strong. It's good to have a lot of Bible knowledge. It's good to be mature in your walk in the Lord. But don't use your strength to beat down your brothers and sisters who aren't where you're at. It would be like expecting our toddlers to be able to keep up with our teenagers. It just doesn't make sense. It would be cruel. And so Paul says, number one, the strong are to bear with the failings of the weak. What are the failings of the weak? The failings of the weak, and this is, if you read chapter 14, answers that, and we'll look at a few verses in a moment, but let me just generally give it to you, is they don't fully grasp the gospel. Or, or what they do grasp, they haven't yet been able to apply to how they live their lives. And that's a struggle for all of us, isn't it? It's one thing to understand the gospel. It's quite another thing to translate that knowledge into action. And so the failings of the weak are, well, I just, I want to stay where it's safe. The Bible says to take one day in seven. I'm just using Paul's examples out of chapter 14. The Bible says in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, one day in seven to rest, not to work. I just, I just need to stay where it's safe. 
That, that's the failings of the weak. Because a stronger brother or sister might be able to lovingly come along and say, well, have you thought about the fact that there's more to that command than just taking one day off in seven? That, that po- God's point wasn't ultimately about keeping one day in seven from shopping and, and uh, work and play and going to the restaurant. Actually, there's a deeper theological point that God wants to make. Well, I, I'm just not ready to, to think that through. I, I'm, I'm new to this. That's the failings of the week. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go any deeper. I want to just, this is what it says. This is what I want to do. That's the failings of the week. And, and what I am not doing right now is saying that we should then beat up on this poor brother or sister. What the text says is we are to bear with our weaker brothers and sisters, those who are younger in the faith. Let's take a look at a few verses from chapter 14, going back up to verse 15. This is what it means for the stronger to bear with the weak. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, in the original context, this was food sacrificed to idols. Um, So if, if there's a food that's sacrificed to idols and you go and you buy it because it's done its duty for the pagan idol god and it's now on the market and you go and buy it and you eat it, uh, there's other places in the Bible that says we know that there is no such thing as uh, other gods. There's only one God. And so, so long as we pray and we're thankful for this food, uh, you don't have to worry that you're participating in some kind of pagan worship. But what about your poor Gentile brother or sister who's just come to faith? They, they used to give their meat at the pagan temple, and now they see you going and scooping it up and bringing it home and serving it, and he's still trying not to worship those pagan gods. So you know that there's only one God, and you know that that meat is not not given to any other God, and that you know that your conscience is clear, but why would you tear down your poor brother or sister by inviting him or her over for lunch and serving them food that had been sacrificed in his former pagan temple? Another example would be uh, clean and unclean. We know that the food laws were not ultimately about food. It was about establishing the categories of unclean, clean, and holy. We went over this last week. Therefore, we can eat anything now. Jesus made the point, and God made the point to Peter in a vision when he was at Joppa. And, and so we know that we can eat bacon, and we can eat sausage, and I don't know what the other animals would be. Um, but there's all kinds of food that we can eat. But what about your poor Jewish brother or sister who's just recently come to faith and they've been raised on kosher food laws. Are you going to invite them over and pour them a big glass of milk and a side of bacon? They can't have meat and dairy at the same time. And if they were going to eat meat, they're not going to eat bacon. And you say, well, get over it. You're in Christ now. Are you going to tear down your brother or sister over food? So that, that's Paul's point here is love. We have to think every situation through and being theologically correct is not the whole ballgame. It's not the most important thing. The most important thing is love and meeting people where they are. Take a look at a, another couple of verses. Verses 20 through 22. 
Do not for the sake of food, we're in chapter 14, sorry, 1420. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, so we've talked about the clean and unclean already. There's another uh, part there that's tucked in, verse 21. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So can Christians drink wine? Only Welch's wine, right? <laughs> Only what? Because we all know that in the biblical time, the fruit, fruit didn't ferment 2,000 years ago. There was no alcohol in their wine. It was like bubbly water with a little bit of grape. No, that's not true. Of course there was alcohol in the wine in the time of Jesus in biblical times. But some people, they're, whether maybe they're coming out of an alcoholic background or maybe not them, maybe they, they grew up in a, in a family where alcohol was a real problem. So we know that it's not a sin to drink wine. It's a sin to get drunk. But do not drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And, and one of the things I had to work through, because I'll, I'll drink a glass of wine, have a beer, but one thing I had to really work through is not feeling hypocritical. Why in some contexts would I do it and in other contexts not? And it felt like, well, am I being a hypocrite? I, you know, the pastor wants to publicly show that he doesn't indulge in any kind of alcoholic beverage, it, but at home or with certain select guests, he will. Am I being hypocritical? No, I'm not being hypocritical. I'm being careful. Because I recognize that Everyone comes from a different walk of life with different strengths and weaknesses, and uh, I don't want to cause someone to stumble. You get to that very end part, he says, uh, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That is, don't impose it on other people. Blesses the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. And what this means is, if I do something that is theologically acceptable to the detriment of my weaker brother or sister, then I, have, I ought to have a guilty conscience for that. So blessed is the one who doesn't put himself in that position. The strong are to bear with the failings of the weak. As I said last week, we fulfill the law according to the gospel that is, we take the old covenant laws, all 613 of them, and we filter them through the reality of Jesus Christ dying in our place on the cross, rising on the third day. And we try to understand these laws the best of our ability, and we try to keep a clear conscience always in our behavior. But what this necessarily means is we're not always going to agree on the best way to live the Christian life. And we have to be okay with that. You know what? One of the worst kind of churches to be a part of is a church where the preacher gets up and morally browbeats the congregation based on his convictions. It's just not a nice place to be. It, or uh, a, an elder in the church, or the elders as a group, or uh, a powerful faction in the church 
requires that the rest of the church live exactly how they live. That's not the kind of church that we want to be a part of. Uh, There are some things where we can rightly open the Bible and say, look, brother, sister, this is really clear. And I see that you're not living this way. And for Christ's sake, I'm coming to you with love to call you back to, to what the Word of God says. But on a good many other things, it's not so clear or because of past lifestyles or life contexts our consciences will not permit us to live a certain way so let us in those instances where it's not clear or because of past life circumstances we cannot get to a certain place that's where grace must prevail and here if you go back to the beginning of 14 Paul's exhorting the weak not to look down on the strong for not keeping Sabbath and for eating all kinds of food. Here, he flips it and he says, now you strong, you're the strong ones. Bear with the weak. I've given you some examples, uh, just a couple more. Um, Again, we don't have this issue at South Shore, which I'm so thankful for. So I struggled to come up with some examples. I can honestly tell you there's not a single example that I'm going to haul out right now because this is a real issue for us. And I'm so thankful for that. And it took some work to get here, but we're here, and I'm so thankful. So thank you and commend one another. We love one another, and I think we're living this out extremely well. Um, Drinking alcohol we've already talked about, uh, but let me just be clear. The Bible does not prohibit anyone from drinking alcohol, but it does prohibit drunkenness. And if you have a history of alcohol abuse or a family um, context where it was not safe, it's best to just stay away, and we can support you in that. I want to especially make that point because I shared with you my own personal uh, conviction on it and where I'm at. That doesn't need to be where you are at. Um, dancing. Uh, I have no idea how many of you dance. Now, there's, there's some kinds of dancing that's probably morally not, not a good idea. It's, it's, you just don't go there. Um, I did not see the halftime show of the Super Bowl, but I heard that there was some dancing in that, that not should we not only not do it, but we shouldn't watch it. Um, so, okay, but then on the other extreme, there are some, let me say Baptist, and we're Baptist, but there's some Baptist places where it says, uh, we're against premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. <laughs> and, and we don't want to go that far either, right? So it's a, it is one of those great, there is a way to dance to the glory of God. David did it. So, so there is worshipful dancing like everything, right? What the devil does, he takes a good thing and he always twists it. So with all of these things, there's the good and the bad in all of them, whether it's having a glass of wine or dancing or what have you. Even uh, sexual intimacy is a good gift from God that we twist and pervert. Um, things that you can do on Sunday. I mean, I, I, we could say playing cards. That's from a, ge- a generation ago. Don't play cards on Sunday or... Um, don't go to restaurants on Sunday, don't do this, don't do that, and to the point where, um, like, Sunday was the dreaded day for most children. 
So love the Lord, but I just hate Sunday. I hate the Lord's Day, but love the Lord. So, so there's some flexibility there. But, you know, if you can't do something on Sunday, don't do something on Sunday. But don't require that of everyone. Um, what you wear to church, again, not an issue for us, which I'm so thankful for. Uh, but you know what matters more is why are you wearing what you're wearing? There's two ways, extreme ways, to approach God by what we wear on Sunday. You know, if I was going to, you've heard this, if I was going to meet the Queen of Canada, do you know she's the Queen of Canada, not just the Queen of England? If I was going to meet the Queen of Canada, I w- would, I, would I wear my best clothes? Sure. So, okay, so somebody wants to dress up to show reverence and respect to God as king, Jesus as king. That's good. If, if I had two children and one child said, I want to wear my best dress or my best suit because I'm going to meet with God, I would say, oh, bless you. And then the other position is, you know, God sees me all the time and I, I just want to be myself. And so I want to go and worship God as myself. I don't want to pretend to be someone else. I would say, oh, God bless you. It's the motive. Why are we wearing what we're wearing? Not what we're wearing. And both of those positions are good. And in this fight of what to wear on Sunday, you you get both sides fighting against. No, you you have to just be yourself. No, you have to dress up. No, you, you have to like wear your worst clothes. No, you have to wear your best clothes. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what you wear. But why are you wearing what you're wearing? That's what's more important. That's exhortation number one. Exhortation number two is in verse two, and it's related. Take a look at it. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Exhortation number two, then, is pleasing our neighbor. We are to please one another. We are not to look to our own interests, but to the interests of one another. So you see how it's related. But what I want you to notice here is the progression that Paul is making. He has a progression from bearing with to pleasing. So not only do you bear with, like bearing with is almost a negative, right? Like, okay, weak brother or sister, I can put up with that. The next exhortation says, don't just bear with, uh, that is to keep the peace, but go out of your way to do what is in your neighbor, your brother and sister's best interest. Do what would be good for them, for his good, to build him or her up. So exhortation number two basically answers the question, what does it look like for the strong to bear with the failings of the weak? Well, please the weak. Do good, or do that that which is good for the weak. Build up the weak. What does it mean to please the weak? So if you're strong, what, what, what do you have to do in order to please your weaker brother or sister in the faith? It's what we've already talked about, so I don't need to take much time. Refrain from doing something if that will hurt the conscience of your weaker brother or sister. Voluntarily say, I will not have a glass of wine with this celebratory dinner because I have a weaker brother or sister at the table. What does it mean to build up? So to please, it still has sort of this 
negative connotation to it, right? It's what we're refraining from doing. And sometimes when, I, when I've read this passage, I leave it right there. But the rest of the Bible doesn't allow us to leave it there. And Paul adds these, uh, these words, build up your weaker brother or sister. What does it mean to build up? Well, it, it includes the pleasing, that is, refrain from doing things that are going to strike the conscience of your brother or sister in a negative way. But I would add to it, the building up is to gently, that's the operative word, gently, uh, lo- with love and grace and patience, nudge your weaker brother or sister toward a fuller understanding of the law and gospel. So, so what, what we don't want to get into is, well, just live and let live. Like the weaker have to always put, the stronger have to always put up with the weaker. No, to build up is to lovingly, graciously, patiently come alongside your weaker brother or sister, not with condemnation, not with a, a strong word, but very slowly talk about what, what is it about this behavior that is so important to you? Do you have a history in this? Or do you, do you come from a family who struggles with this? Or Like, get to know, be pastoral, but then slowly, when the opportunity is right, begin to build up your brother or sister by showing them a better way. Help them to become strong as you are strong. Say, you know, actually, when we run that law through the new covenant look at look at what it means look at look at the implications for how we can live we have great freedom in christ so that's the building up but you see the difference between wanting to be proved right and demanding that your weaker brother or sister put up with your strength live like me or get out it's just a totally different approach The goal, though, is always the move from weak to strong, from immaturity to maturity. That's the building up. Rationale that we are given is in verse 3 to 6. So if we could wrap up those exhortations, the strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. We do that by refraining from our things that we are free to do and by slowly, gently, graciously, lovingly coming alongside our weaker brothers and sisters and showing them a better way. Theological rationale for this, verses three through six. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of words here that we don't have time for. That could be a whole sermon right there, the theological rationale for what I just said. But let me summarize it this way. We are to do this extending grace to one another, especially strong to the weak, just as Christ extended grace to each one of us. Be like Christ. Psalm 69.9 says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That psalm is uh, a picture of Jesus. You could put that in the, in the mouth of Jesus as he hung on the cross. The world hated God and so the world hated Jesus. And the imagery that we get there is um, 
David is out in the wilderness in a wadi and there's a flash flood that comes and pours over his head and he's going to die. And he says, the people that hate you or hate me because they hate you, God, are like this uh, flash flood that are threatening to kill my life. And Paul puts that in the mouth of Christ as he hung on the cross. And he says, now just think about if Jesus, while he hung on the cross, decided that in that moment that he wasn't going to put up with the failings of the weak. Imagine if in that moment Christ says, no, I'm determined to be proved right. Then he would have come off the cross and we all would have been eternally dead. And that's the theological rationale. That's the motivation. Why do we treat each other this way? Because Christ has treated us that way. He didn't look for perfection. He didn't even look for any good in us. He definitely didn't need us to be strong. He says, I'm going to die for you while you hate me. And you hate me because you hate God and I'm still going to love you. I'm going to bear with you. I'm going to please you by dying in your place. And Paul says, if that's what Jesus did for us and he didn't need to be proven right, then you can forego your need to be proven right, theologically, for the sake of love. That's all I have time for in the rationale. Uh, but that's more or less what those verses say. Now we get to exhortation number three. Extend grace to one another just as Christ has extended grace to each one of us. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, therefore, in light of the first two exhortations and this theological rationale, we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now, if you see the progression, bear with one another, right? Bear with one another. Please one another. Do good to one another, build up one another, and then finally, the, the ultimate is to say welcome one another. Why? Because you welcome unconditionally, no strings attached. Welcome one another. You know, everyone is all over the map, and if you've been in the local church long enough, you know that we are far from a perfect people. And if we're looking for the perfect expression of the gospel, the perfect expression of Christianity, you're not gonna find it here at South Shore Bible Church or any local church for that matter, the best that we can hope for is that we are moving somewhere. We are moving from weak to strong. We are being built up into the likeness of Christ together as we wrestle through these things together. Uh, but here in verse 7, he says, welcome one another, period, unconditionally. Love the unlovable person in your midst. just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now there is a caveat here. Christ welcomes those who receive him. So we're not, this is not an exhortation to allow the unsaved world to flood the church and to have no, no standard of membership or to have no statement of faith. But in keeping with you know, the basics of the gospel, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. We believe in, in, in the necessary things to believe. We major on the majors. But then we definitely need to minor on the minors. And we welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us. 
And this is a good opportunity to remember the gospel. Our righteousness is not based on behavior. And this is interesting because here we are at the end of three sermons about fulfilling the law and we are told to welcome one another unconditionally. What about fulfilling the law? Well, yeah. You fulfill the law to the best of your ability, empowered by the Holy Spirit as an act of worship, responding to the grace at work in you that has saved you and made you righteous. It's a mouthful. But remember, in our keeping of the law, it is never to establish or maintain a right standing with God. That's done by Jesus on the cross. And that frees us up to welcome one another even when we're failing miserably in life. So we can, at the same time, exhort one another, fulfill the law, and receive those who are failing miserably to fulfill the law. How do you hold those two things together? Well, the problem is Christians either err to the fulfill the law or you're out of here, or come and you don't need to fulfill the law. But the gospel actually requires us to hold them together. We exhort one another, fulfill the law, and I'm going to bind your conscience on what is clear, and church discipline will kick in if you refuse to make an effort to fulfill the law that is clearly expounded in the New Testament scriptures. And on the grace stuff, we're going to extend grace to one another so we can exhort one another toward fulfillment of the law and at the same time receive one another when we're failing miserably. What, what brings the two together is a sincerity of faith. Those who have a sincerity of faith are going to necessarily, this is the proof, the evidence of their sincerity of faith, they're going to desire and make every effort to fulfill the law. And they're also going to fail miserably to do it. So what we're looking for in the church is neither one or the other, but both held together by the sincerity of their faith. We seek to fulfill the law, but, but we can welcome one another when we fail to fulfill the law because it's not about keeping the law that is the grounds of our salvation to begin with. Clear? <laughs> That's tricky, isn't it? The point is this. Christ receives us when we have faith in him. We must, this is a biblical exhortation that we cannot skirt around, we must receive one another where there is a sincerity of faith. And church discipline has one goal, to explore the sincerity of faith of the individual under discipline. And church discipline will, will cease when a sincerity of faith is discovered or a lack of faith is discovered. So either a sincerity of faith, the love and the grace of God can cover a multitude of sins for a, a weak brother or sister who's struggling in a sin pattern. Or church discipline will, will discover that that person's not saved. There, there is no sincere faith there, in which case they must be removed from the local church. But you see, the whole point is we fulfill the law out of the overflow of worship, not as the grounds of our justification. Theological rationale for this is in verses 8 through 13. 
I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Oh, there's a lot there. I could summarize it fairly quickly, though. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. What does that mean? The circumcised, those are Jews. Christ became a servant to the Jews. What does that mean? He kept the law perfectly on their behalf. That's what it means. Israel failed to keep the law. Therefore, the covenant curses were, were issued against them. Christ became a servant to Israel by keeping the law on their behalf. And he took the curses of the covenant upon himself on the cross. That's how he served Israel. He did what Israel was unable to do, and he took the curses that he didn't deserve, that Israel deserved. In so doing, he serves Israel. He becomes their uh, substitutionary atonement. Why did he do this? To show God's truthfulness. What does that mean? God hates sin, and he loves righteousness. God couldn't just say, well, I know you're having a hard time with the law, therefore I'm going to forgive you anyway. No, Jesus had to serve Israel by keeping the law and being punished for Israel's law-breaking in order to show that God is truthful, that God's law is good, that God's law is right and holy. Because on the cross, what Jesus proves is God loves his law. He will kill those who break his law. God said it in the Old Testament. It's proven true on the cross. Jesus dies in the place of lawbreakers. But in becoming a servant, he opens a way for lawbreakers to receive the blessings. That's the great trade. He takes the curse, we get the blessings. And why did he do this? To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. What are the promises given to the patriarchs? that through Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus died on the cross to fulfill the law for Israel, and not just for Israel, but for all the nations of the earth. That's what we get in verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, which we do. So the theological rationale for why we welcome one another is Jesus has dealt with our sin problem. Don't crucify Christ a second time by requiring perfection in the local church of one another. Then there's uh, several passages that go back to the Old Testament that talk about how Gentiles are grafted into these covenant promises. Go from uh, 9 through 12, and then this last verse in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And Paul ends here because he's just spent two chapters talking about fulfilling the law. You must fulfill the law. Take 613 laws from the Old Covenant, run them through Christ, fulfill them in the New Covenant, and then at the end though he's saying, but you're going to fail at doing it. Welcome one another if there's a sincerity of faith. Why? Because because Jesus has dealt with your sin problem. And what he's doing is he's locating the fulfillment of law in its rightful place, which is not to earn God's favor, but as an overflow of gratitude for the favor that God has graciously given. And when you realize that we fulfill the law not to be made right with God, but because we are right with God, then the God of hope fills us with joy because our law keeping is no longer to earn salvation. 
And when we fail to keep the law, there's still forgiveness and mercy for us. And so we're filled with hope and with joy and with peace in believing, knowing that now the role of the law in our life is worship. Then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound in hope. And we fulfill the law not because we have to, but because we want to. The strong are to bear with and to build up and to welcome the weak. Always remember that Christ fulfilled the law for us as the ground of our salvation. Therefore, we fulfill the law ever so imperfectly as an act of worship only and not as the means of our justification or salvation. With that in mind, we can afford to be patient and gracious with one another on all matters where there's a sincerity of faith and especially on matters of conscience. If you have any questions about this, I'd love to talk to you about it. I don't know that I've done it justice over these last three weeks, um, but I, I will pray for you and I'd be happy to follow up with anyone who wants to know what is this law that you speak of and why do I need to keep it? We keep it to worship God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and helping us to understand that your law is good. Even though it is not the means of our salvation, it is good, and we want to live in the new covenant reality of the law to worship you fully. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace when we fail. And I pray that you would help us to bear with one another, to please one another, uh, to do good to one another, and to build up one another. Help us to welcome one another as we are, knowing that you have put your place, you put your son in the place of sinners. And God, help us to understand this, thing, this text and help us to live it out. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
slain Here in the death of Christ I live